You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy and co-host of the Energy Insiders podcast with David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust as ever our listeners are enjoying the podcast and well themselves in what's a busy time in electricity markets and coming up to New South Wales election. Certainly is, yes. Not just coming up to the New South Wales election, but also getting pretty close to the federal election. And uh, we'll have a talk about that later on. But um, we've got a very special guest today um, from Energy Australia. We got hold of Mark Collette, who is the head of energy trading. Well, actually, it's a bit more than that. He's the energy executive, uh, I think he styles himself. It's a title I haven't heard before, but I I, I quite like it. Yes, it is not bad, but effectively, though, he's the second in command and basically running the day-to-day operations of one of Australia's big three utilities. Is that not right? That is indeed right. Well, here we go. We got about half an hour with him the other day, and here he is, Mark Collette from Energy Australia. Mark Collette, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure to be here. I'd like to start off with a big picture question. Um, We hear a lot about the energy transition and the pace and the scale of that transition. What is the view within Energy Australia about what is going to happen? Are you expecting an incremental change? Are you expecting a major disruption? And how do you go about, in that case, fashioning a business model for the future, particularly when you get the likes of Royal Dutch Shell talking about making the leap from transport fuels to becoming the biggest power producer in the world. The energy transition is absolutely unstoppable, and I think that's a great thing. And I think we're headed towards um, an energy system, particularly electricity system, which is going to be affordable, reliable, and have zero emissions. The only question is, is what date are we going to get there and how bumpy is it going to be along the way? And of late, there's been a few bumps that I think we could have avoided, and perhaps we can explore those a a little later. But uh, in terms of what it will look like, I think some of the broad brushes are pretty clear at the moment, and uh, maybe just just talking to a couple of those. Uh, The first is that um, the renewables are going to be the cheapest source of energy. So we have wind and solar at rates that we just did not expect. A couple of years ago, it might have been $130 a megawatt hour for wind. Now it's somewhere in the 40s or 50s and and heading lower. So you can see a bedrock of the system is going to be solar and wind. One of the big questions is how much um, of the time can that bedrock be the system? And at the moment, um, personal view, it's probably somewhere 50 to 60%. Um, Maybe we can get it a bit higher if we can uh, build interconnectors that that share the wind across the country. So the solar doesn't vary so much. But if we've got different wind patterns in Tasmania and other places, if we share them about, maybe we can get that back up. But the affordable bit comes in in needing the reliable supply to back it all up. And at the moment, that's the coal, which also provides the the energy. But in future, that will be more a capacity play. Um, It's the coal, it's the gas, it's the pumped hydro. Um, A little bit, it's batteries, although... Um, I think for for the resilience of the system, it's probably other technologies at the moment. Um, And our focus at Energy Australia is all about um, building that second piece and enabling more of the renewables coming into the market in an affordable and reliable way. 
We'll get down to that um, storage later. I know David is busting to ask a few questions, but I might just throw in one quick one here. When you were talking about 50 to 60% of that bedrock, what are you referring to? Does that mean that they can provide 50 or 60% of the generation or it can be just renewables for 50, 50 to 60% of the time and then all the other dispatchables for the rest of the time? So the 50 or 60%, I think, is the amount of energy that we could get from renewables um, uh, delivered at the time that they're generating. And so mm -hmm. that would be if, if we use roughly 200 terawatt hours a year, um, I'd see that we'd get 100 to 120 um, terawatt hours that would come as generated out of, uh, out of the renewables without having to store or do other things to it. Um, that's the, the, the cheapest energy we'll ever get is the renewables that come and are used at the same time. As we have to move the time um, and move the energy via storage, it starts to get more expensive. But um, that bedrock that I talk about is energy that's produced when people want it. That comes from cheap, um, cheap sources of renewables. So, Mark, um, it's, uh, you mentioned there's a few roadblocks along the way. And I guess, as I said to someone else, there's really no certainty in life. Facebook doesn't have any more certainty than an electricity company. But I know that you've been thinking hard, or at least Energy Australia has, about investments. And these include things like Kaltana, a pumped hydro project in South Australia of a couple of hundred megawatts. Uh, there's a heads of agreement with another pumped hydro publicly listed company, Genex, in, in Queensland. And I, I believe you're also interested in redeveloping your gas assets or doing something in addition to your Talawara combined cycle plant in New South Wales. Uh, are you, I guess, how are you thinking about those generally? And do you, do you still expect to make some investment decisions around those assets this year? So our focus on the, at the moment is on the reliability and affordability, and it's the backup to the renewables that are coming through. There's lots of renewables coming into the system. We want to make sure that the system stays reliable and affordable and we avoid some of the hiccups of late. Uh, the, the ones that we do like the look of at the moment um, that we're, our focus is on this year are the pumped hydro projects in Queensland and South Australia, um, gas at our Talawara site in New South Wales, and demand response um, across all states. The reason we like all those technologies is firstly, they provide additional capacity. Um, the system that we uh, operate in, the national electricity market, is tight on capacity, as tight as it's ever been. Supply and demand are quite firmly balanced during times of um, high demand, particularly during summer. So we like that they add capacity. The second thing we like is that they, uh, for the pumped hydro, they add storage. So at times, we're already seeing some of the renewables being constrained off because while they supply cheap energy, they don't provide all the grid stabilisation services that are required, and storage effectively provides those services and enables a bit more renewables into the marketplace. So they unlock some of the potential that's latent and already there in the system. And then thirdly, on the demand response and the demand side, we really like um, using energy when it's there and available. And for some people, they don't actually care when they use the energy, so long as they use it um, at, uh, over a certain period. And what I mean by that is you might have someone like a, a miner who runs a conveyor between two stockpiles, and they need to make sure they move a certain amount of dirt or ore or whatever it is over the course of a year, but they don't really mind if it gets interrupted um, on, a, on a day for a day or two. Um, we're seeking out all of those opportunities where people have flexible 
um, energy and capacity to match up their energy use with when it's available um, to get the best possible prices for them and the best possible outcome for the system. So initially, it's all about capacity and a bit of flexibility um, to make the system work better. And um, I guess you mentioned earlier that you see coal's role changing. I mean, this is obviously a podcast where uh, <clears throat> we, 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 I think there needs to be a much smaller role from coal sooner rather than later. But if I just put that to a side for a moment and think purely as an engineer, uh, there's been a lot of talk about um, the flexi how flexible or inflexible coal generation is and I was looking at some ramping performance, and I think Mount, Mount Piper uh, Energy Australia's coal station has a very flexible ability and can ramp up and down its capacity quite well. You, you, you also have a decision to make around a coal loader so it can take coal from other mines. Uh, I, I guess, could you just talk about Mount Piper and what does it need a lot of investment and... Um, or some investment, and, and how do you see its role evolving? Coal today is still the bedrock of the system. We've got a lot of renewables coming in, but they're coming in, they're not here. And coal provides the bulk of the energy across the eastern seaboard. So our job at Energy Australia is to make sure that coal is available and reliable. And we, uh, at our coal-fired power stations, Yalorn in Victoria and Mount Piper in New South Wales, um, that's the mission that we, that we do have. However, we are looking for a very different future, as I've, as I've talked to. And in that very different future, we do see that the, the role of coal in some ways becomes a bit like gas. When you think about a coal-fired power station, people have this tendency to think of, of baseload, um, which is really a term from the... It's more a term out of the 1950s than out of the 2000s. And it was the idea that you build something and you just run it all the time. That's not the role we see from particularly black coal um, as we look into the, the decades to come. Instead, somewhere like Mount Piper, we have two 700 megawatt units. Those units can operate sustainably and reliably at 150 megawatts. Um, that's about the minimum level that you can go to, and those units are not much different to any of the other black coal units in New South Wales. So if you think about that, what we could see ourselves doing in the future and what I think will become likely during periods of high renewable supply is that we'll operate at somewhere around 150 megawatts with the ability to flex up um, for the morning peak and the evening peak when everyone gets up and or gets home and turns on all their electrical appliances. As we do that, it might mean that we're 150 megawatts most of the day and ramping up to 700 megawatts um, during both of those times quite quickly. That's a really, in some ways, you could think of that as a, as a 150 megawatt base load with a, um, a 550 megawatt peak at sitting on top. And I think that's increasingly the way people will start to think about coal as we get more energy from other sources that's actually cheaper than the chunks of coal that you burn. But your lawn is not, uh, your, your lawn, your brown coal uh, generator in Victoria doesn't have that same degree of flexibility, I don't believe. So you're right, your lawn is a different technology. It's, a, it's a, of a different era and brown coal is fundamentally different to black coal it has less energy in it. Uh, the reason for that is that brown coal is actually two-thirds water. So one of the reasons brown coals are such huge structures is because you're evaporating so much water. And with such big boilers and um, less heat in the coal, it does mean that they lack the, the punch that you get from uh, black coal or from gas. 
and off the back of that, it can be um, it, it, they're just less less flexible beasts. So that means they're unlikely to perform the same role as you do get from black coal. They are likely, in our view, to uh, ramp up and down over the course of the day. And um, you, you and some of your listeners may recall that when we had the carbon scheme in place, um, a lot of the brown coal did move up and down in megawatts over the course of the day. So it would, would often be at minimum generation overnight, which might be something like half its capacity, and then would be at, um, at higher generation levels when, when it was required by the market. But I think you're right. The brown coal doesn't have the, the ramp rate that we expect from the black coal. And so it's, it's more likely to be step changes over a course of a day that are, that are uh, loaded and unloaded relatively slowly in comparison to some of the other technologies out there. And so, while Mark, we're talking uh, about coal, I just want to throw in one quick question, David. Just while we're talking about coal, what do you make, Mark, of these um, other proposals around the place for new generation to be built, um, including one in Victoria, which I presume is going to have to be brown coal? Um, do you think they are in any way realistic? And what's your view of them? Oh, look, coal Coal is the bedrock of what we've got today and thousands of people across the country have done a brilliant job mining coal, turning it into electricity and powering Australia for um, over well over 100 years. And you, you might, your listeners may or may not know that the first coal mine in Victoria was actually your lawn. So we've got a long heritage around coal. However, we do see coal as a legacy technology. It's something that we will absolutely use to provide affordable and reliable energy um, as we go through this transition, but we are going through this transition. And um, initially we thought, well, the transition might need assistance from um, carbon targets and some of the other policy mechanisms. As it's turned out, if you think about solar and wind being actually cheaper than the coal that you get out of the ground, um, for black coal in particular, um, then you're going to take as much of what's cheap as possible. And the role for everything else is both backing up um, the wind and solar given their intermittency and um, doing that as cheaply as possible in a role where they're only going to run maybe at most 30 to 40 percent of the time. In that environment, coal is a really expensive form of capacity when it's running at such low levels. So the, the signal that we see is actually four other technologies. Um, ignore the carbon or no carbon at the moment. The economic signal is to take as much of the cheap stuff as possible, which looks like the wind and the solar, and firm it up with um, cheaper forms of insurance, which is why, uh, which is where we see the pumped hydro and the gas and some and the existing coal coming. But it's just very hard for us to see that any new investments, given the high capacity factor they typically require, actually stack up economically. And so, Mark, uh, sorry, I just wanted to finish on, on the coal and then move on to some other topics. But I, I guess the thing you didn't ever quite answer the question about <laughs> the coal loader at um, at Mount Piper. And in general, if I look at AGL, I see that they're spending about 300 to 350 million a year on their thermal fleet, which is a bit larger than yours, but quite comparable. And over four years, I guess they'll have spent well over a billion dollars. Um, I'm just wondering how you're looking at the capex spend uh, broadly within the thermal fleet that Energy Australia has here in Australia. We're investing hundreds of millions of dollars a year into our thermal fleet. So uh, I'm not going to quote the exact numbers of AGL because I don't know them and I'm not, I can't give you the exact comparisons, but you'll get a sense from the hundreds of millions of dollars of capital spend that we do have that it's a fairly significant investment. 
Um, the way I talk about Mount Piper and the coal unloader is um, it's well known that there have been a number of um, coal issues in the west of New South Wales, which um, have at times restricted Mount Piper's ability to generate. Um, we recognise that having a single source of coal um, is a risky proposition. So our focus is on getting access to multiple sources of coal. One way to do that is via a rail unloader. Um, other ways to do that are to work with the local mines and get uh, multiple sources of coal. Um, it's not a case of we, we have to do one or the other. The main goal is diversification to make sure that the capacity for Mount Piper is available when it's needed. Um, and, and that's our focus and I'm confident we'll end up with that as the um, with that diversified fuel supply available for the capacity that we need. My last question on this topic generally is, um, you know, AEMO's drawing attention to a higher rate of forced outages uh, across all the coal fleets in recent years, but particularly brown coal, they've actually adjusted, uh, you know, their whole uh, statement of opportunities around that higher forced outage rate of which your lawn has been a, a reasonable contributor. And I think I'm right in saying it, it wasn't an incredibly great performance in this last summer. You can correct me on that. Um, uh, um, do you see its performance and reliability improving or as these plants are having to work harder, is, is our outages going to become more of an issue? Uh, the first thing I'd say is I'm, I'm very proud of the teams that we have at all our power stations and the way they um, face into the challenge of keeping our capacity available for, for summer. And over the last few summers, we've had a, a great record of having our assets available when they're needed. Um, this January, when we did have the heat wave, um, we, were, we were gutted. We were really disappointed that we ended up with two Yalorn units out, which in combination with the other, um, two, other units that were either out or on low load meant that 200,000 customers lost power for a portion during the day. Um, our job and my job is to make sure we buy and make enough energy so that our customers have power. And for customer power to be cut off, that's, um, you know, it's gutting. It's not where we want to be. In terms of the performance that we, we have from your lawn, it has been good in recent years for those peak days. Um, during this summer, uh, we did have one unit off on maintenance. We took it off on maintenance um, the week before the very hot weather. The reason we took it off was because we didn't see the, the hot weather in the forecast and it had been on um, for an extended, it had been on for close to five months. And with the brown coal units, they need to come off usually between three or four months to, to actually clean the boiler. So it had a very good run. We'd been trying to keep it available all summer, but it got to the point where we had to take it off. We tried to pick a window where it didn't look hot, the weather changed. Uh, the compounding factor for us was that we then developed a tube leak in one of the other units. And uh, for this tube leak, we actually did everything we could to keep it on. And the tube leak developed on the Wednesday. We managed to keep the unit on through the Thursday, avoiding any customers uh, losing power during that day. But uh, we had to take it off on Thursday night when the tube leak, the tube leak worsened. So um, I can assure your listeners we did everything we could to keep those units available for the, the hot weather. Um, unfortunately, you do need to take plan maintenance from time to time and the weather forecasts do change and unexpected things do happen. But looking over the past, um, over a longer period of time of, the, of multiple summers, um, our performance has actually been pretty good, um, noting that it is, is never good enough when you do have customers who don't have power. That's right, Mark. And, and, and if I just I wanted to move on and before I hand back to Giles to a different topic now, although related, 
I guess at the moment, electricity prices are surprising a lot of us on the upside. Uh, the renewable supply that we're all forecasting is coming through more slowly. But I think even more importantly, um, you know, uh, coal prices remain very high in New South Wales. Gas prices, we don't need to even talk about. And I, But is it also the case that hydro availability is less than it was, say, a year ago? And all of these things are sort of making supply relatively tight because in the end, demand is no higher than last year, but prices are up in the pool market. When we looked at what we expected to happen, say this time last year, I think there was a lot of commentary in the market that was expecting um, particularly wholesale prices to trend down as we got a lot of renewables coming into the marketplace. Um, I think the first thing that happened is that that didn't happen. Uh, a lot of the renewables have come online a lot slower than expected. And in particular, there's been a lot of connection-related issues that have slowed that, um, that entry. Um, because the renewables haven't come online, then uh, some form of energy needs to replace what would have been cheap. And because, um, because the only available forms are coal and gas, and gas in particular is quite expensive by historic reasons, I think that does, does explain a lot of what we have seen in the, in the market. Uh, hydro availability does come and go uh, a little. It does look like it's, um, there's perhaps less water than there has been at times uh, in the past. But I think the root cause of all of this is the renewables not coming on as fast as we expect. I do see that the renewables will come and will come online, but uh, they haven't quite made it as fast as, fast as uh, the market expected. Let's go to storage, Mark, now. Um, one, because it's going to be a crucial factor, I guess, that once those renewables come online, um, we're not so dependent on some of those higher price dispatchable um, generation. So you mentioned some of the things um, in the introduction. Um, let's just talk about first Coltana, um, one of about four or five different pumped hydro projects which are mooted for South Australia. They surely won't all get built, at least not in the short term. Um, what's the latest you can tell us on Coltana and the feasibility studies? Sure. So Coltana, we really like Coltana. Uh, the reason we like Coltana is because it is a seawater pumped hydro in a very dry continent. Now, when we started out, we liked that. We had to do a lot of engineering work to determine can we make the um, seawater, uh, all the complications that come with using seawater work. Uh, what we've decided, what we're very likely to do is decide to um, actually move from the bottom reservoir, which was published in the uh, arena study that we did being the sea, we'll probably make that a, uh, we'll probably dig a special reservoir. And what we'll do is we'll use the seawater and fill it um, and treat the seawater so that we end up with briny water in a reservoir. In doing that, we think that's a smart way to both keep the seawater focus of the project, but avoid a lot of the engineering issues. As we've done that, we've worked mm -hmm. through all the engineering and design. Um, we really like the way the, the project looks. Uh, we've got some work to do in order to uh, get, um, get through an EPC tender, the engineering procurement construction, and, and get firm pricing so that we could then uh, take an investment decision. Uh, we expect that all, all to happen over the, the course of this year. But um, we've, we've always loved the idea of seawater pumped hydro in a dry continent, and uh, all the work that we've done, I think, has reinforced that um, it, it does have legs. Now we've just got to test it in the market mm. and see if the, the prices that we get are, um, are good enough to make the project fly. 
is it a bit of a race with the other projects? Because um, I, I, um, do you agree with the idea that um, you probably only get one in the next 10 years um, built? Um, and maybe maybe one other if it's behind the meter at Wyala with um, Simic Energy and the um, and, and the steelworks there, and uh, maybe you can just sort of also add what the impact of the proposed interconnector to New South Wales has on that project. Does that does that make it more interesting or or slightly less interesting? I think all new generation is a race, um, and it's a race across all the states. Uh, because I think generally the market's looking for more capacity and the, the first one in tends to make everyone else pause and think, well, what, what does that mean for my project? So we're moving as fast as we can with Coltana and with the Kidston project with GenX and with Talawara and the various other endeavours that we, that we do. Um, I'm not sure I'd buy that it's just one, um, having said that. Uh, in South Australia, there is a lot of renewable energy that can be unlocked with more pumped hydro coming in. Um, there is also a lot of, um, of system security uh, services that I think are going to become more and more valuable in regions like South Australia. So uh, I think the jury's still out on whether it will be one, two, a different number. Um, and and mm-hmm. I'd also say the jury's still out on the interconnector and what that means. Um, and there's South Australia New South Wales interconnector, for those of you who, those of the listeners who haven't um, looked at the Electronet doc- document. Um, it's quite an interesting, and uh, at a recent gas conference, David pointed out that I was quite the energy geek for describing it as a fascinating document, but I, I did find it a fascinating document. Um, some of the All our that, listeners would find it a fascinating document. <laughs> Sorry. I'm very glad to hear that. I'm in the right spot. Um, so the reason it's fascinating is because it's got some things that I think do make a lot of sense, and it talks about how building an interconnector can provide more security for South Australia in that it shares around some of the services from New South Wales and TIC. That's absolutely true. It can help um, liberate some renewables that might otherwise not get as much volume to market. And I think TIC, that's absolutely true. But it it then also has um, a base case where most of the market benefits that are put forward are around shutting um, Pelican Point, uh, Torrens Island and Osborne, which is quite a lot of gas-fired generation in South Australia, having that all shut the moment the, the, that it's energised and having the coal in New South Wales just increase its output. Now, as we've talked to, the, the fuel prices for New South Wales coal are quite expensive. And um, when you look at the signals the market's getting, it's getting signals for use less coal, use less gas. So to have a base case where you're shutting a lot of gas replacing it with coal, um, it doesn't, doesn't look quite right. And in that context, I think it's, it, it, that interconnector may well stack up on the security and on the renewables diversification angles. Uh, and I'm very keen to see how it goes through the process. But it's one that we're watching quite carefully to, to see, um, one, if it gets through the regulatory investment test process, and then two, um, how well it complements what we, we may choose to do at Coltana. Uh, ultimately, interconnectors um, move problems around and if you've got a capacity shortage in one region an interconnector helps you um, bring capacity from another region but ultimately you do need some of that capacity to be added to the system somewhere and that's where we think they could be complementary but there's there's still a way to go on both projects. Mark yeah I I, do you see Caltana has been able to compete with gas in South Australia at, at current gas prices? Coltana does two things. Gas does one thing. So Coltana does the capacity, which gas does, and provides that um, firm capacity into the market. The other thing it does is it stores energy 
that in some cases may not actually be generated without the pumped hydro. Gas doesn't do that role. So when you put the combination of those two things, the, the storing cheaper energy and the capacity, um, I think that dual role is quite, uh, quite attractive um, and as a package does compete well with a gas investment. And I just wanted to go on to another, I guess, topic, uh, which is controversial, but, you know, that's this podcast and that's uh, energy policy. Um, I could ask this question in a lot of ways, but I'll ask it in the sense that um, uh, the federal Labor government is bookies' favourite and opinion poll favourite to get into power. Uh, from what you've seen of their policy so far, is it something you could live with or do you have any comments about it? I'd say that when we look at the electricity system and the energy generally, we generally focus on what's driving change. And I think the cost structure of renewables is driving change. I think the installation of solar PV and distributed generation is driving change. Um, I think the combination of those two changing the way power flows go across the system are driving change. And I'd say when you look at the electricity market, um, the market is there to provide financial underpinnings to that physical system. It's an artificially created market in the sense that it doesn't exist unless it's created by governments. That's how we got the national electricity market. So ultimately, when we look at policy settings from, from anyone, we think they will eventually follow the physical needs of, of the marketplace. So whether it's labor, liberal, or state, or federal, um, a lot of these issues that are emerging around how to integrate large volumes of renewables and how to do that in a, uh, in a secure and reliable way and how to have affordable prices, um, different policy instruments have different pluses and minuses associated with that. But our focus is very much on what are the physical solutions that come at least cost to deliver those outcomes. And because we focus on that, that physical, how do we physically supply our customers at least costs, um, that's how we think we best, um, we best position our business to, to provide what customers need, which ultimately should be what governments want. <laughs> I'll take that as an answer, uh, even though I didn't know that I learned an awful lot from it. <laughs> Mark, and just uh, quickly, I think we haven't mentioned batteries in this uh, discussion. Uh, there's batteries behind the meter where, you know, um, um, uh, the CEO, Brett Redman of AGL, mentioned that he's very keen to get a big share of that space. You guys have got a couple of managing, working with a couple of batteries, utility scale batteries at the smaller end. What sort of role do you, do you see yourselves getting bigger in batteries one way or another? So as you noted, we financially underpinned um, two battery projects in Victoria, the, um, one at Ballarat and one at, um, at Kerrang uh, or Gunnawarra. And the reason we did that at 50 megawatts across the two is because we wanted to really put some batteries into the market at a good scale and test the role and see what the best role for them was. Um, I think it's too early to say exactly what the best role for batteries is. They do seem to have a pretty good role around frequency control, and certainly the South Australian battery has provided some, some pretty good services to the market in, in the, some of those ancillary services. Um, there, there is an obvious role around storage. At the moment, based on battery prices, both today and forecast, um, that does look a little limited. 
Um, it does look a little limited because the, the economics may work at some point, whether it's today, tomorrow, or, or in a few years' time, to store energy from your solar on your roof, say, and um, use it later in the night. Um, that's conceivable. It's pretty hard to see that batteries will work for seasonal storage, so moving the sunlight that you get in summer to um, to the sort of less warm parts of winter or from windy periods in, say, spring in some parts of the country to less windy periods. It just, when you look at the economics, you're building storage that isn't used very much and your capacity utilization is really low and so your effective cost is, is really high. So it's perhaps a, a little long answer, but I see a role for daily movement of energy for batteries that um, um, speed of which the adoption comes, open question. Um, I think there needs to be something more to make our system work um, than just batteries. Well, presumably it means actually just um, some new rules in the market to actually unlock some of the um, the value that the batteries um, have. I think um, even AEMO have um, underlined the point that probably only about one third of their potential services actually have a market that they can get some revenue from. Um, are you sort of keen to follow some of those possibilities? I'm just wondering what you have actually learned. I guess those batteries have now been going for about um, a few months. I mean, you did sort of say it was too early to come to any conclusions, but I'm just wondering what it is that you have learned over, over the summer. Well, look, too early to come to any conclusions, but in terms of the use of storage, um, if you take uh, January 25 as an example, we had the batteries fully charged. We had some of the, the highest demands we'd seen uh, all summer and we had one hour's worth of storage. Um, so the higher demand period lasted something like five to 10 hours. So clearly you'd need a lot more batteries than the ones that we had to get through five to 10 hours when you only had one hour storage. So uh, at the moment, based on the cost structure, we've, I guess, confirmed that uh, it's not just batteries to provide that. Um, some of your other questions Would around what services... Well, certainly pumped hydro Sorry. will get you through, say, seven or eight hours, seven to ten hours. So we, that, that's, that's the role. We do think that's a, that's a good role. And the cost of storage in pumped hydro for that, that duration of eight to ten hours is, is more attractive than, than we think batteries will get to anytime soon. But the broader question, I guess, is it takes more than just power coming out of a solar panel or out of a coal plant to make the system work. We do have a system that relies on controlling voltage, um, controlling for faults that we have in the network, um, managing a frequency, uh, dealing with oscillations in voltage and all those, those wonderful things. Um, historically, those services have all been provided by big thermal generators, particularly coal. Uh, looking forward, as you have less coal generators, and as we're seeing in South Australia, um, there are other ways to provide a lot of those services, and some of those services um, may lead to bespoke markets. Um, I think we're still, as a market, working through um, which of those make the most sense. Um, but I, I do anticipate over the next couple of years that um, there may well be some new markets that emerge uh, to ensure that we have sufficient services to deliver a reliable and secure system. I'm sure it's going to end up being a portfolio of uh, portfolio of, uh, of things that do the dispatchability and reliability. It'll be some pumped hydro and some batteries and perhaps a bit of gas. And and you mentioned demand response, which we're going to run out of time for, Giles. I'm just conscious that you and I could talk to, to Mark probably uh, until he was as hoarse as Theresa May. 
Uh, but <laughs> can we, we just should, fill in we one quick, quick question then? One, one, one quick, quick other question about batteries and behind the meter. What, 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 how are you seeing the behind the meter? I mean, there's obviously your your, your customers. Um, I can't remember how many million you do have. Um, there is a shift to rooftop solar. There is a um, a great interest in in, in batteries. Um, there's a lot of anticipation about electric vehicles. How are you thinking about that particular market and how you service that and stay and stay relevant? Yeah, behind the meter, we do have 2.6 million customer accounts across electricity and gas. And you're right, what customers' um, expectations and hopes and dreams, they've all changed. And if you do go back 20 years, um, people weren't talking about all the things they could do with energy in their homes. Now, it's not uncommon to go to a barbecue, and I'm sure you two, uh, being energy geeks of of my ilk, um, would often lead those conversations at barbecues. And uh, indeed, with uh, people, I've had conversations along the lines of things like which batteries will actually work through a blackout. So there's a lot more interest than has ever been behind the meter. Our, our focus is on ensuring that the services that we provide can cope with all the different technologies that may come. So our, our fundamental job as a retailer is has been to provide energy and we go and either make or buy that energy. We buy it as cheaply as we can and, and make sure it's reliable so we can supply all our customers. As customers start to generate their own energy and provide some of their own capacity, our role becomes to manage the, um, the mismatches that they do have. And we've always had mismatches. We've always had mismatches between the amount of generation and load that um, we have as a company. Um, what that's meant, though, is that instead of doing that um, as a whole enterprise, we're now going to be doing that for individual customers. So over time, the way I'd expect that to evolve is for customers who um, are looking for more exposure to spot markets or to manage their own services. Um, I, I think we'll have products and ways of integrating things that they either want to supply or, or take from the grid into the, offer, the core offering that we do. Um, our focus very much at the moment is just understanding which ones, how fast, and um, and then exploring how we make them work. Um, but I think that's an area that there'll be an awful lot of change coming over the next couple of years. Well, I, I think we should wind it up there uh, uh, myself, not because I'm not interested, as I said, but because uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just uh, time conscious of the... But I want to say thanks, Mark. Uh, it was a great interview. Uh, it's great to talk to one of the uh, uh, biggest owners of uh, generation in the market. And I trust Energy Australia continues to uh, make some money and do well for its shareholders. Thank you. Our focus is on doing well for our customers, first and foremost. Our customers. Are... <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> thanks very much, Mark. I do appreciate it. Great to be here. That was Mark Collette from Energy Australia and David, pretty fascinating interview. Um, I did note his use of the word uh, bedrock uh, and not base load of the um, of the energy grid. Um, coal is that now, but renewables will be sometime in the future. I'm just wondering what you took out of that interview, and it's it's interesting to note that we've now had interviews with the three the the big three utilities: Greg Jarvis from Origin Energy, um, AGL CEO Brett Redman, and now Mark Collette from Energy Australia. What's what, what's your big takeaway from these three? Well, none of them are pushing back on the idea that we're going to have a higher share of variable renewable energy in the mix. I guess some of them are more enthusiastic about uh, at face value about the pace of change than others. And um, they're all of them, I think, struggling with how to manage their thermal assets in the face of that. And 
quite clearly anyone, any financial person will tell you that the way to do it, to manage what you might call a sunset asset, that is an asset with a limited life, is to milk it for all the cash it can get while it's still going. Uh, and they're all, I think, struggling with where to invest um, uh, to get the similar sorts of returns in the future that they've got in the past. And finally, they're all having to manage their customer loads um, and their customer numbers, which are basically really struggling to actually hang on to retail customers at the moment and not just household, but business ones and consumption per household is declined. The one very clear point of differentiation, I guess, is in, not that uh, most listeners will care, is about their approach to the gas market, the retailing of marketing of gas, where Origin has essentially taken over all of the market share, really, of both, or a lot of it, of both AGL, the traditional owner of that share, and also Energy Australia. Uh, because it's got had access to upstream gas, which is basically essential if you want to be in the gas business uh, now. Yeah, that's interesting. Look, and I'd agree with you all on that. It was interesting that um, the one question that we did pose to all three, which was what does the business model of the future look like, um, was successfully do dodged by all three. As they, as they say, they're, they're more focused, as you say, sorry, as they're, they're much more focused on, on milking what they've got for as much as they can for as long as they would. Um, interesting about gas. We heard from Shell last week and again this week that um, they're interested in setting up a, um, a power utility, um, not just in Australia, but across the world. They are a big gas business they actually still see gas as a transition fuel but they also see the electrification of all customer loads and all customers heating and transport within about 15 to 20 years which just goes to add to the pace of change and it'll be interesting to see one if Shell does actually deliver on this promise um, to enter the um, into the power business in Australia and and how they achieve that and um, whether it's been sort of more successful than sort of various attempts in the past. I think they had a bit of a crack at it about a decade or two ago, but it didn't turn out too well. Giles, a couple of other points uh, for listeners that may have missed them in those three interviews. One is that AGL has already identified it wants to get into the household battery space in a bigger way. I guess it's had quite a lot of practice in that already with its virtual power plant, and that, that was in the Brett Redman interview, and we'll just have to watch and see how it goes. Uh, the second uh, point that Mark Collette, and I think actually Mark Collette's probably got a deeper love for his coal-fired power stations uh, than the other two, if truth really be told, uh, is that is he, he, he certainly did seem to they could they could flex, but <laughs> well, and it's the flexing point that I want to make, and that I think many people believe that coal generation is inflexible. But Mark made the point that uh, the minimum generation level of those two. Uh, plants that they have in New South Wales uh, at Mount Piper, the two units, uh, is 160, 150 megawatts, and they can flex up pretty quickly to 600 megawatts. And in fact, uh, we, um, Paul McArdle from Global Rome, uh, whose data I use a lot in every view, he is collaborating with another guy to do a generator report card uh, that is actually looks at the uh, ability of all the generators to ramp up and ramp down. And we've seen in New South Wales that uh, plants can ramp up two or 3,000 megawatts across the whole system within a couple of hours. And of course, as the variable renewable energy uh, increases in New South Wales, and as imports increase when the transmission's finally built, uh, then we're going to see coal having to you know, be a lot more flexible. But the point is you shouldn't write it off, it, it, it is flexible. 
And that's interesting too, but it also underlines the point that when, if coal does remain within the system, and um, quite clearly um, some of it will for some considerable time, 10 to 15 years at least, then its actual role as a baseload component is actually going to be quite minimal. As you say, it's going to be flexible and dispatchable. Um, so it was interesting to hear Mark Collette's terminology about that, sort of, you know, sort of the bedrock rather than the base load. And this gets back to what Michael Bloomberg, uh, sorry, Michael Liebrich from Bloomberg New Energy Finance has been talking about. And he talks about the new system as being base cost renewables and basically dispatchable generation filling in the gaps. So um, quite interesting. And the question for all of us is going to be where the price sits in, in, in that mix, because we know what the price of the variable community uh, uh, component is going to be. But when we look at the daily average price, it's a question of what uh, the firming guys are going, are going to be able to charge, not what theory says they should charge. If you look at, say, um, uh, uh, Andrew Blaker's studies of balancing cost, but what in the real world they're actually going to be able to charge every day of the year. Well, that's interesting. And that takes us to another bit of contemporary politics. And the coalition has been putting pretty, pushing pretty hard on this new modelling from BA Economics and Brian Fisher, formerly of Abare, um, got blanket coverage in the Australian the Financial Review this week, fairly uncritical. Um, now, I know you don't like talking about this sort of thing because um, this modelling um, doesn't stand up to too much review, but it does shape the political narrative. Um, have you just got any quick views on Look, this? Look, his modelling is out of um, uh, is out of sync with everyone else's modelling. I mean, uh, all the rest of the modelling uh, varies a little bit, but most people come to similar ideas that uh, the cost of renewables is falling all the time, uh, driven down by the learning rate. That seems extremely obvious. Uh, that uh, the firming cost will come down probably as well, that a portfolio of firming exists. And, you know, depending on who you look at, that uh, electricity, 100% uh, re uh, renewable, uh, might be $70, $80 uh, in 2019 terms and probably could well be less in real dollars uh, by the time we get out another six or seven years, just depending on how it works. Uh, we think there's lots of employment opportunities um, uh, we think, you know, you can look at uh, uh, the possibility of exporting uh, wind and solar electricity to Indonesia. That'll be a big political story, but uh, you can look at hydrogen exports. Uh, you can look at the jobs in rural communities. Not that there aren't that many jobs in power generation in, in absolute truth, but there are construction jobs and some maintenance jobs. And, and uh, as the wind and solar is around the fringes of the grid, um, <coughs> that, uh, that, that does create employment as well. So. Frankly, I think Brian Fisher's... St I don't even bother. I, why give it oxygen? Why mention it? Because it does shape the political narrative. And I guess um, if most newspapers are just going to repeat it um, blithely, then at least someone should get up there and criticise it and take it apart bit by bit, which we've endeavoured to do today, um, or this week anyway. So um, so there you go. David, um, once again, look, I'm just going to say thank you to our sponsors before I say goodbye to you. Um, what Watchers and Solaray Energy, um, they've been supporting us for a long time now, and we do appreciate their support. I also would remind um, listeners that we do have interviews um, not just with Energy Australia today but with Origin Energy and um, AGL just go look in our back catalogue on your favourite um, podcast platform and also check out the interviews that we did with the um, guys at the Texas um, market operator Warren and Lash Cat 
Yeah, thank you, Warren Lasher. And um, from the California market operator, um, both fascinating to see how they're managing their transitions and obviously in the case of California to 100% renewables by 2045. David, it's been a pleasure again. That was Charles, a great, one, um, one other thing. I just want to re-emphasise that I don't think the debate over MLF factors, uh, marginal loss factors and where wind and solar is going to be located and the risk around that, I don't think that debate's come to an end. And I think it points to the general principle that, um, you know, the AMC and uh, the ESB and the AMO are still struggling like crazy to actually keep up with the pace of change. And that pace of change isn't, is, might slow down a little bit, but it's basically going to keep going at this rate or even faster as the need for decarbonisation becomes bigger and bigger. Absolutely. And it's going to be fascinating to see if one, they can actually catch up and one, if they can keep up with the pace of technolo te technology change. So, um, yes, we will certainly be watching that space and we will be watching late next week for the final um, decision on the MLFs. That's the marginal loss factors and how much of the electricity that a solar and wind farm or for, any, for that matter, any thermal generator producers gets actually recognised at the customer end. Anyway, David, thank you once again. Um, it was a great interview with Mark Collette and um, we'll be, thank you to the listeners and we'll be back again next week. Cheers, Charles. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.